It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Chills. Good week? Bad week? Same week? What's your week been like? Ours has been, well, interesting. It's been sunny, it's been lovely when you look outside. You can't believe that the world is still in a strange old state. But today it's raining and this feels more normal for what's going on. How is it with you down there? Surprise, surprise, it's Mr Andy Saunders. How are you? I'm, I'm all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. It's, um, it's chilly today. It's been, as you say, it's been nice and sunny and warm and been sitting outside and having a cup of coffee in the morning and it's been lovely and this morning it is pouring with rain and cold and I'm sitting in my office at the bottom of the garden and I haven't turned the heating on so I'm kind of shivering a little bit which is uh, not something that I've done for a few weeks. Yeah, how's your week been? Have it, has it been, you know, I can't even remember what week we're on. Is it four no, five. six. Six, okay. Yeah, week, oh. week, week six. Uh, what's it been like? It's been same old, same old, really. I haven't really done anything hugely interesting. I'm not the designated shopper in my house, so I'm not even going out. My wife's doing all the shopping, um, and she's got her mum has got uh, dementia, so she's having to kind of shoot back and forward. She lives quite locally uh, from that, so she decided she would be the designated shopper. So I can't even go to the shops, really, so I'm going out for a run every day and then coming back and doing my work and... You know, I'm settling into quite a nice little rhythm. I'm not, I'm not, not enjoying it. I have to say, I think it's perfectly fine. It doesn't feel like prison. I don't know about you. No, uh, absolutely, I agree with you. I mean, as you know, my work usually comes from inside my head. So um, you it, keep saying that. Well, it's, well, it's like, true, but but because I have to come up with my work and things so I, you know people don't approach me and say hey can you do this particularly occasionally I get asked to write and have you managed things. to get any work out of your head in the last week yeah I have actually it's, it's, okay. been, it's been good what, what, what well, have you been doing well I've actually been inspired by you oh um, okay <laughs> That's worrying. <laughs> Tell me about it. Maybe, maybe this. You're lockdown. telling lies for a living. Is that what, <laughs> what you're doing? That's no, what I do. No, you were talking to me about a project that you're working on with rock photographers. Um, oh yes. And I don't know if you 
can talk much about that. But what it made me do is, is last summer I was out on tour with the band Doves. And uh, I was taking a lot of photographs for them, and I've got literally thousands because you know what it's like when you're when you're on the road for uh, stretches at a time. Uh, a lot of things happen, and I've always got my camera handy as opposed to a film camera these days. And I really needed to go through them and edit them. And I was kind of inspired about rock photography, and I started looking back at great photographs and things, and, and thought I've got to get this right because. You know, the band would like to see them. There's things that can be done. But, yeah, I started uh, editing and going through them as one has to with all these things because often you can do things and then they get left if there's no deadline for something. So, um, yeah, I, I, I feel a real cleansing. There, there is nothing like it. When, and I'm sure you'll have found this with photographers. When you take a whole stack of photographs and it's finding that one in the 100 that yeah. is the right one. It's all about editing. Yeah. It's all, it's all, it's all about, yeah, uh, about find, finding that one, really. So is, is there a book on the horizon or something like that, or are you just wanting to present them as a portfolio to them at the moment? No, we've talked about various uh, things. They've used quite a few for social media. And right. um, as you know, in, the, in this day and age, content is king, at the, especially at the moment, because nothing's happening. So it's actually a good time to revisit their return to the live arena last year after a nine-year hiatus um mm. uh, so and they've been recording so it's the perfect time to get things uh it's, very shape. it's very difficult to make money as a photographer these days um you know one thing that i've discovered i mean if you want me to i could tell you a little bit about my project that i've been yeah, doing i didn't know if it was top secret or no it's not it's not top secret it, it, so so about eight years ago uh myself and a couple of friends a guy called dick carruthers who is a famous live music filmmaker so if you've ever watched one of the really big live concerts whether it's Oasis at Nebworth or Beyonce at the O2 or the Killers at the Albert or one of those type of really special moment concerts chances are Dick probably filmed it he's the guy that probably put it together and directed it um, he's been a friend of mine for a long time as has a, a very famous photographer called Gerard Mankiewicz and Gerard Mankiewicz took a lot of the very early Rolling Stones photos the great shots on Primrose Hill uh, he also took that uh, all those amazing shots of Jimi Hendrix uh, in the military jacket looking into the lens with the cigarette that everybody knows they're iconic photos uh, and we, we got talking about eight years ago about perhaps making a film about the history of music photography and it sort of swirled around and didn't go anywhere for years and years and years and eventually, to cut a long story, very long story short, we managed to raise some money um, off some uh, film financiers and they said, we don't want a film, we want a six-part TV series, uh, which we thought would be a really big ask, but we, we committed to it and that was a couple of years ago and now we're in post-production, in other words, we're editing it all together and putting it all together for Sky in the UK and Amazon Prime in America and it is a six-part documentary about about music photography, music photographers. It's about on the road, on the album cover, uh, in galleries, uh, how it's going to transition in the digital age. It's a really big project that it's, I've immersed myself in over the last couple of years. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been amazing. And you've seen a little bit of it, so, you know, it's, uh, you know that it's, it's coming down the line. I don't know when it's going to come out, probably early next year, but uh, I'll, keep, I'll keep everybody informed on social media. But it's, it's been fun. Yeah, well, not not to big you up too much because, you know, I don't want to expand that head. Um, but <clears throat> it definitely is, what I've seen, it's inspirational. And that's what 
documentaries should be able to do when, when you're telling stories which is what you're doing in the in the series and and dick's laid it out fantastically it looks beautiful it sounds beautiful everything is inspirational and that's what a great documentary series does so yeah it's got me back to edit mode so thank you very much i can't wait to see the whole series it will be fantastic so thanks man i appreciate that no absolute pleasure and uh, yeah and the other good news i had this week was from my publisher in uh, uh, bloomsbury who said that uh, the books that i wrote with ralph steadman about the environment and endangered animals and extinct animals um there's been a move from the americans side of the company to release them as paperbacks for Christmas. Oh, wow. That's great. So, so that, that is amazing. That's you the know. gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? Because you did a shoe range fairly recently, didn't you? Yeah, shoe and skateboard range. With vans. With vans, yes. Yeah. Indeed. Amazing. And we've been check doing... us Check us polymaths out. That's Renaissance man. <laughs> the word that's missing after that should really read polymath genius, but uh, I'll, go, I'll, <laughs> I'll go with polymath. <laughs> Thing is, I mean, what, what's interesting, isn't it? I've never made a TV series before. You've never done, been in the shoe market before. I think the thing is, is you know, if you are vaguely entrepreneurial, which both of us are to a degree, if you throw yourself into a creative project, even if you don't really know what you're doing, if you have the passion for it and the desire to, to make it work, you can. So anybody that's listening, if you do have a passion project or a creative project that you that you care about or you think you can do, and there's plenty of people you know out there that I know listen to this podcast that have written books about Chelsea um, and have started publishing companies. In the case of Mark Worrell, or you know who you know who are musicians and have released records or made video. I mean, there's loads of things you can do creatively and don't let the fact that you've never done it before restrict you just just go out there and 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 figure it out because you know you can make great things happen out of your head as you say absolutely and and i i think one of the key things that i discovered was and and you probably got this when you were really busy it was very easy to start saying no to things and actually if you can switch that and start saying yes to an idea you've had or somebody approach you about could we talk about this it, it changes the landscape you still have the ability to say no down the line but yes yeah. is a very powerful word i think well i think the thing is with creative projects is is you know i would say the vast majority of of crazy ideas come to nothing but it's a bit like editing your photo collection occasionally one amazing idea will germinate take growth and you know you can nurture it and it can become something um you know it took eight years to put this tv documentary together you know eight eight years of buggering about and talking to people and getting somewhere and and getting knocked back and eventually it came to fruition and and it's the same with you know pretty much all the creative projects i've done they they take a long time and if you can be focused and and not be discouraged by getting knocked back you can you can do amazing things so if you have an idea i would say go run with it do it make it happen yeah it's it's like reading the the book that i've just finished on the beatles one two three four by craig brown You, you forget that actually everyone knocked the beatles back can you imagine if they'd gone, you know what, I am actually going to go and get a job as a, as a washer-upper or, or a chef or whatever. God knows what would have happened to the modern world of music, I presume. Well, that, I mean, that, the Beatles is a great example. As you say, they got knocked back. I mean, wasn't it the guy from Decca that said, you know, sorry, but we think bands with guitars are on the way out? You know, I mean, to be fair, he did go on and sign the Rolling Stones, that guy. So, you know, gave, gave with one hand, took away with the other. But, but the great thing about the, about the Beatles is they were signed by Sir George Martin, who up till then had been making novelty records. He'd been making Peter Sellers records and Goons records. He, you know, he, he wasn't somebody that was, 
had a great track record for creating amazing pop music so so it was a you know the whole Beatles thing at the beginning was a fluke but it was bloody minded you know sort of just keep going with their manager Brian Epstein and just somebody will love this we will find the right person and we'll keep it going and the, the rest as they say is history so exactly so do what you love love what you do it's exactly anyway yeah anyway we we should move on because this has been another week of coronavirus talk um, and this suddenly seems to be the week that makes or breaks the football season. I, I don't know if yeah. you've been keeping up with this, but uh, Friday there's a big meeting of the Premier League and, and, and football, and part of me is still thinking that there seems to be this air across the country that now's the time, because we've seen places like New Zealand, they've just got rid of their lockdown, things are happening in other countries... We have to look at our own situation, and and we mustn't go too early. And the talk of football coming back, it's wonderful because we all understand the power of sport to to really make us forget our difficulties. But it can't come back too early. And um, what do you think about it? It has to be the right time, doesn't it? It does. Um, look, nobody wants football to come back more than me. Well, I'm sure there are. That's just an expression. But, you know, I, I'm desperate for football to come back. It's a huge void in my life, not having sport to watch. We've, we've discussed that on, on recent podcasts. And actually, what was lovely was watching some of these reruns that have been on the, the TV recently. They're re, rerunning Chelsea games in full. You know, there was the 3-3, I mean, a slightly annoying game against Man United where we drew three all. And then another game, you know, against United to win the title with the fantastic Joe Cole goal you know it's great to watch those games in full and see the nuances of the games because we used to watch in highlights but watching a 90 minute game with a break in the middle is is great and it reminds you how great it is to watch football in its entirety so yes I miss it desperately and there are talks about bringing uh, games back behind closed doors uh, in order to, to finish the league and something about it smells bad I just don't like the idea of playing these games behind closed doors essentially to fulfil a contractual obligation because the big problem is if they don't play these games and they don't finish the season there is a huge uh, potential debt to be paid back to the broadcasters whether that's Sky or BT or or, or whoever it is uh, that owns the rights to these games uh, who have probably advanced the money already so it's something like a billion pounds it's a huge amount of money that that has to be paid back so there feels like an unseemly rush to finish the season, play these games behind closed doors. And I find the motivation behind that concerning and unpleasant. And I have no problem if if the only way to get football back is to play it behind closed doors. If it's been properly thought through, if all avenues have been exhausted, if there is a proper strategy in place to do it, if it's genuinely thought this is the best way to bring football back, then I'll stand and applaud it. But at the moment, it just feels like it's been driven by commercial imperatives. And there's also the point that uh, if you have to take people away from the, NH- from the NHS for a game, that's not right while people are still dying. And if one person contracts coronavirus, let alone if one person dies due to a game being played, then it will have not been worth the return, will it? Well, you know, you can't argue for social distancing and then have all these people playing football on a football pitch and, and all the support staff and all the camera staff and, and everybody else that's involved in staging a game and... You know, even now, some some teams are going back 
training. I read that yesterday that Spurs and Arsenal and a bunch of other teams are going back training, but they've, they've got like one player per pitch and they're rotating the, p- the players that can, you know, they're trying to basically observe social distancing. As soon as we move into a match play situation, all that goes out the window. So do we test everybody before they go on the pitch? And what if somebody has it and, you know, is a key player? I mean, it's just, it's, there just seems to be so many variables involved in it that I'm sticking to my original. Um, thought process, which is we, we, we finish the season, we void the season. Whether we void the season, or as some people suggest, award it on points per game or, or whatever metric you decide, we basically we stop this season and say this season cannot continue, and we will resume the season when it is safe to do so. And if that is behind closed doors, um, I'll, I'll support it if, if that's the case, and, and we've thought that through. But kind of transitioning from this period of lockdown straight into a behind closed door situation just seems wrong to me. It seems like clutching at straws, and there's it does. There's, there, there's two points that you make in there, which I think I think are interesting. One, the behind closed doors. What what I've seen, I, I had a glimpse at a, a couple of games on TV when they're behind closed doors. Um, there is no atmosphere. So perhaps you do something audio-wise and you record, a bit like Arsenal do. I'll never forget that, being early at Arsenal and finding they play crowd noise all the time um, because it's such a quiet place. <laughs> Maybe you could have, you know, audio... Kerry, that sounds like an appalling idea. Uh, no, but um, it's, it's ironic, you know. I mean, how, okay. do you, how do you deal with this? You know, Well, it's a bit like when you've got an electric car, isn't it? And the electric car doesn't make any noise, so they, they, they record the sound of a Ferrari and play that... You no, it's just it, it, there's, a, there's a level of sort of inauthenticity. Yeah, uh, you can. I mean, in some electric cars, you can choose your engine noise because you know you don't want to travel along in silence. Or you know, I mean, but uh, but the idea of overlaying a you know a less than authentic sound track on it just sounds weird and wrong. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm just saying it's are. all unnatural yeah. but also yeah. there was a, a an interesting point from i was reading paul mckinnis in the guardian and he had a um a quote from dr craig boyd who's a senior lecturer in sports performance at manchester metropolitan university um and he wrote with social distancing you can't do the things that tick lots of boxes these are the most game-defining moments of sprinting turning stopping tackling and doing those while considering opponents and the ball these are the most strenuous activities in football and increase, and increase the likelihood of success and failure. They're currently totally stripped back, and even in small groups they would be problematic. Getting over social distancing, that is the big thing. Mm. And, and that sums it up to me, because can you play this properly? I guess the only way they can do it is everyone gets tested before the game, during the game, after the game. I, I don't know. It, it seems like a risky, risky strategy when we don't yeah. have a vaccine. I just don't think it's driven by the right motives. That's my, that's my issue with it. It's about loss of money, isn't it? That's it is. It's, it's a commercial decision, not, not a sporting decision. You see, also, uh, uh, this is another area. What happens to season tickets? You know, normally we'll be paying for them by now. Will we get money back from the games that you well, can't? Well, I think they've already announced, haven't they, that they will figure out a pro rata um, system of, of repaying people who, who haven't been able to attend games. Okay, well, well, that makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, although you, you, you feel for everybody who's losing in this, but it's not just clubs that are losing. Everybody's losing. Everybody's. Yeah. Got- it's worth mentioning as well. I mean, I know we have mentioned this about how well Chelsea have behaved in this, and, and they've reiterated this week that they are not 
furloughing staff. They are not taking taxpayer money. They haven't um, agreed a pay cut with the players, but what they have done is asked the players to continue supporting uh, the existing charity work that they're doing. Um, they are continuing with their social responsibility initiatives in terms of you know, providing um, accommodation for key workers and food, etc. Um, and they have, you know, spoke about reimbursing people that were going to go and see the Munich game in the Champions League, three hundred and fifty pounds each. They have spoken about making sure that season tickets are catered, season ticket holders are catered for in terms of uh, lost money for matches that haven't been. You know, there, there's all sorts of stuff going with the club. It doesn't feel like Chelsea Football Club are. Um, clutching at straws or trying to claw money back. It feels like they are taking a long-term view of this and realising that once we get over this bump in the road, it will be hopefully business as usual and they want to be, have been seen to have acted properly throughout the whole episode. Yeah, I, for me, I think Chelsea have answered most questions along the way when things have got difficult they've tried to work things out there's obviously ongoing dialogue with the players you know frank frank sat out of those discussions rightly so because i don't think managers should get involved in this it's not their remit um yeah i would say on the whole chelsea have come up with thought processes and answers and if they haven't got the answers they carry on working on it um mm. Interestingly, uh, you mentioned there the players. Well, that gets mentioned um, by our man Nizar Kinsella, who gives us his roundup of the week. So I guess it's a it's a good segue into hearing what Naz has been up to. So here he is, Goal.com's correspondent and our correspondent too, Mr. Nizar Kinsella. Hi everyone, this is Nizar Kinsella, uh, Goal's Chelsea correspondent, reporting for the Chelsea. Um, yeah, it's been uh, another week. It's been a week since I last spoke to you um, through through this brilliant podcast. Um, always great to sort of keep in touch with you guys in, in a verbal way. Um, you know, my job's mainly written, and it feels more personal talking talking to you guys. So, yeah, uh, this week we've had a bit of news, which is good. Uh, Olivier Giroud um, has renewed his contract, or Chelsea have exercised the option to renew it. So he's sticking around, and uh, that solves one problem in that his contract was due to expire probably before the season ended. So, um, you know, keep the strike around for then. Uh, there's also, you know, the fact that Maybe Chelsea and you know other clubs, Man United, have spoken about it publicly. Uh, will have less money to spend in the transfer market, so why not tie up a player who's playing well at the moment um, and then spend money elsewhere in the squad? You know, if if the transfer market is going to be a very strange one. So uh, yeah, I think Chelsea are well stacked for that. If there is you know a problem signing players, they've got the academy boys too to lean on uh, once again. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting scenario. A bit of news there. Um, also, Chelsea announced that they weren't gonna uh, do pay cuts for their players. So uh, that's one thing. And um, yeah, they announced that uh, they would pay all their staff in full up until uh, you know June, which is when they hope to be back playing again. Um, so not using that government furlough money. Um, I think that you know widely, widely they were praised uh, for their handling of the crisis, which is. Is good to see and right. Um, yeah, uh, and and then th- those are the kind of newsy pieces that I've been working on this week. Uh, there's also been interviews. 
uh, interviewed Michael Beale. He's a guy who uh, works at Chelsea's academy, kind of found Mason Mount, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, uh, Tammy Abraham, all those guys. Uh, he's been working there um, since the 2000s, um, since the early 2000s, since Abramovich took over. He's a Chelsea fan uh, and he helps get all these players in, you know, selling the dream that Mourinho kind of uh, showed on the pitch. Mourinho uh, obviously winning a lot of stuff in his first spell at Chelsea, inspiring everyone, shaking up the game along with Roman Abramovich. And uh, yeah, these kids like Mason Mount, like Tammy, joined really, you know, from Portsmouth where Mount's from and, and you know, they, they had players from Bristol, uh, really from far, uh, coming to Chelsea because of that, that kind of success. So I wrote a piece about that. Um, and I've written a, a you know an interview with Jurgen Macho. Uh, remember, rem- remember the name? Um, he's a, he was a goalkeeper at Chelsea. He'd never played for Chelsea, but uh, yeah, he tore his cruciate ligament in the first week, and then Petr Cech arrived and took his place. So uh, yeah, I interviewed him, and it was interesting to hear sort of a you know a story that's not your bells and whistles and and a bit more negative and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, he's a great guy and uh, you know a great career in football anyway. And, deserves a lot of respect so yeah it was a an interesting week from that regard We've, we had a few things and hopefully this week will be interesting but it's hard to see what will come out of this stage you know as ever uh coronavirus has badly disrupted football so we'll see what i can do this week but great to be in touch with you guys and all the best so there we go. Interesting that, again, we've talked about this in the past, haven't we, that um, it's all about exploring longer reads or interviews from a different angle. And there he talks to Michael Beale, who works at uh, the Chelsea Academy, who discovered Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Tammy, Mason Mount, etc. Well, well, did he? Well, no, because I know that, you know, when you say discovered, he was scouted by my friend Alf. Right, which okay. I've discussed, discovered before. He might have helped develop him, but he didn't discover him. Let's be clear. Let's be clear on that because Al's a really good friend of mine. I wouldn't want any of the credit taken away from him. Okay. Um, well, we should read this this article on Michael Beale because he's also a Chelsea fan. Mm. I, you know, he talks about this, so it might be an interesting read for you to have a look at, and then we can I'll, discuss yeah, we'll it next it. week. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I mean, it must be amazing when you're actually a fan of the club. I'm not taking anything. Sorry, I'm not taking anything yeah. away from Michael at well, all. I think it, we it, need to just, find out the reality. Yeah, we do because you know it's a bit like the industry I work in, the music industry. You know, there's there's every success has many fathers. You know, I mean, it's it's you know every hit record has four or five people saying I discovered Beyonce or I discovered Oasis. You know, I mean, it's like well, when you say discovered, what do you actually mean? You know, I mean, it's the clarity of it. So I'm always very sensitive to that situation. I'm not even sure Michael would even make that claim himself. It's, you know, who scouted him or who saw him on the muddy pitch in Maidstone and brought him to the club first away? Is that the person that discovered him or is it the person that signed him to a professional contract or who is it? That My point is not to, to, to demean Michael's role at all, but to just clarify what this word discovered means because I wouldn't want any of the credit taken away from Alf who, who you know, not only discovered... Um, uh, uh, or, or, or scouted Ruben Loftus Cheek, but also Tammy, and also a bunch of the other players that are now coming through as well. You know, and it's it's important not to take away credit from people that were part of that process. That's my point. Yeah, I'm just reporting on on what of course, said yeah, in that and, piece, and, I, so. and I'm not, yeah. But it, yeah. it is interesting because what level of discovery is this at? Um, maybe Alf brings them to the club and then they work with them. So, it, but my point is, being a Chelsea fan must be amazing to see the players that you've worked with since they were kids develop 
for yeah. Elf and Michael. <laughs> you, I would you, imagine you, it's quite difficult if you're a fan of a football club to work within that football club sometimes as well, you know, because yes, it must be amazing to, to be working for the, but, but if something goes wrong, you know, if you fall out with somebody or you get fired or, you know, something, you know, something awful happens. I wonder if that clouds your support of the club a little bit. You know, it's, it's, uh, I'm always interested in that dynamic as well about well, whether but being a fan of the club is necessarily a good thing in a professional environment. Well, I have from to a, say, from a personal perspective, you know. Yeah, well, from a personal perspective, you know, I presented Chelsea TV for a year when it was in the grounds um, with Jonathan Kidd, funnily enough. Um, and actually, it was a pretty horrible year. Once I got over the idea that I was at Chelsea, it's a very cutthroat business, and I don't want to see the club that I love up that close, actually. No, so it's, I know, it, that's my point, really. Yeah, exactly. It, I found it very painful, having meetings every week with Ken Bates, who just talked about us as the fat one and the bald one, was, uh, well, I don't know which one I hate more of you two this week, the fat one or the bald one. <laughs> <laughs> I do actually love him for that. <laughs> He was always telling me off because I came up with this idea of recreating all the goals from the weekend on the Stamford Bridge pitch. And uh, I, I remember, do you remember that goal by Mario Stanich? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I recreated that on the pitch. Okay, with a bit of trickery and, and we, you know, literally, it, it, it was fun. But the amount of times Bates threw me off the pitch for creating goals was, was unbelievable. He was going, you're no bloody good, get off my pitch. He was a an abrasive man. And, you know, I mean, the thing is, is, is you're right, getting up that close and personal to something you have such a passion for and love it's difficult I mean I you know we, I've worked for the club as well I mean I did the commentary for years and um you know and, and that ended okay but it was um there were moments where it was like oh I've come along to you know to do something I love here and I feel like I'm doing a job and I just think it's uh you know it's sometimes an odd dynamic you know I've done a little bit of PR for Chelsea as well and as you say it's you know once it becomes work sort of, it just takes the takes the kind of polish off it a little bit so i'm just always interested in that you know and um yeah, yeah. And, and you know but but if you can you know if you can marry the two together it's perfect yeah absolutely but you know football something always goes wrong at some point if somebody comes in and changes doesn't like the fit of somebody it, it just is constantly it always seems like some kind of empirical state doesn't it that there's always someone further up who's looking down and there's always someone trying to come up and there's always someone coming down so yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 a strange strange place but i mean um, people often say to me oh you must you must love music i mean isn't it amazing being surrounded by music all day it's like yeah but i work in the music business and it's like sometimes the last thing you want to do when you come home at night is listen to a, a record you know or last thing you want to do is go to a gig you know it's because you've been working in it all day and sometimes you just want to break from it and yes of course I love music and loves it and music's a huge part of my life and and you know it's still a passion but it's you know sometimes working with something you love can can just as I say take the sheen off it a little bit yeah, I, I, I agree with you. But um, in fact, there's a question on later that uh, from Chris Harley, who wants to know what we're listening to. And also, we, we, so maybe we'll touch on that a bit later that uh, give a few recommendations, perhaps. But um, OK, so it, it's time for some of the questions. As I say, we've talked quite a bit about music, so we should move on. Um, 
here's the first simple one for you. It's from William Watts. Um, we, as, as you know, we asked people, well, actually you sent out the, the tweet, asked people some questions that we can discuss and, and mull over. Um, and I like this first question. Which three teams do you wish were in the Premier League? Uh, what, that, that currently aren't? Is yeah, that, the that currently aren't, that maybe historically we had some rivalry with, or well, it, it was it, a big it, game, or just... It's easy for me. Yeah. Okay. It's easy. The first one, I think. I think. I I don't know what yours are, but I would imagine you're going to say the same as me, which is Leeds. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You've got. You've got to have Leeds in the Premier League because there's such an amazing rivalry with Leeds. You know, going back way, way back, and of course, you know, recently with the anniversary of the 1970. Cup final, which was a you know classic, iconic pair of games, the, the final itself and the replay, um, and and through the decades, that's always been a edgy and passionate game of football, and you know there's always been an edgy and passionate you know relationship between both sets of fans. So having Leeds out of the Premier League for so long, I think has been has been you know not not great. I would I would love to have Leeds back and and have that game in the calendar again. So that's that one. You know, on a similar level, a QPR is another one that I would you know really like to, to have back because again, although they're not rivals in that sense, you know that it's it's very much you know they're, they're a you know a small team compared to us and you know not expected to 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 achieve the things that we do. There's still an edge and there is still that kind of local element to to the QPR game. I like going to uh, Loftus Road, and um, even though it is tiny and the view the, the, the sight lines are awful, it's still a you know a small old-fashioned ground um, and you know there's always a you know a, a great atmosphere and we've had some some corking situations not always good with QPR uh, and on a similar level you know Fulham because again it's another local team and I like going to Craven Cottage and um, I think there's always something even though again they're not really rivals in the true sense because of you know, the resources they've got and what they're expected to achieve there's something about the local element of that game that I like so they're the three teams for me okay well I understand the London ones and I also miss QPR because away was like a home game the, yeah. the noise in that place when everyone stamps their feet as well I, yeah I, I love QPR but I've said it before I mean QPR is probably one of the worst places ever to watch football I once went to an FA Cup game Chelsea QPR Paul Furlong played in the game that gives you an idea of how long ago it was um, and I had a ticket and I still held on to the ticket and the ticket said diabolical view on the ticket and I was literally <laughs> behind a a wooden post and well, had to sort of, it was printed on it or you it actually it said diabolical view <laughs> on the ticket you know <laughs> well, it was cheaper as a result but I honestly couldn't see anything I had to lean around this post for the whole game <laughs> that's brilliant oh god and have you still got that ticket I'll tweet it Oh, yeah, you've got to, you've got to. Well, for me, um, yeah, I'd agree with Leeds. The other two are are giants of football that um, I grew up... uh, One, I really loved their shirts, Sheffield Wednesday. Um, Mm. I I used to... I don't know why, I've got quite a few friends who are Sheffield Wednesday fans who remember the days when, you know. they, They were just one of those sides that you expected to be there and thereabouts, uh, uh, not getting relegated. 
and then they disappeared from sight and it's been a long hard struggle for them to come back and I, as I say I, I love the shirts we've had some ding dong games with them over the years not particularly any rivalry between us but they just seem like a magical name that, that and it's such a ridiculously weird name Sheffield Wednesday mm. you know it's um, and, and the other one for me would be Nottingham Forest okay um, I, I, I thought about Nottingham Forest I did. I, I considered Nottingham Forest. Yeah, there, there's something about them. They were magical growing up. They, uh, look, I find it very hard to watch other teams and support them, but I, I, I'll never forget growing they beat up. beat a 7 0, Kerry. Uh, oh, yeah. No, <laughs> but that's the other thing. We've had some amazing matches with them, and sometimes have has been horrific results. I remember seeing Stan Collymore score against, was it 6 2 at home? Yeah. Uh, and Stan Collymore scored twice, and he looked like the absolute world beater and then i went to see england i think a week or two later and it was his debut against japan and the man came on the pitch and did nothing he couldn't even be bothered you know as we know now he's had an awful lot of difficulties and things but it was the strangest thing i'd seen this man who i thought oh my god if there's ever anyone who is going to take the world by storm it's stan collimore and when you yeah when you get some distance from teams you know distance of time i mean it's uh, it's interesting to look back and you look back on that nottingham forest clough oh. your european you know cup winning team and you know you can with the benefit of hindsight and and distance from it look back and go that was an iconic team there was a great documentary about that whole team a while ago. I think it was on BT Sport. And, and they were all in it chatting about it. It was fantastic. You know, John Robertson, who used to go off and have a fag before Bertles, the game. and yeah, yeah. Gary Bertles, Kenny Trevor Burns. Francis. Kenny Burns, one of the dirtiest players ever. Trevor Francis, I'll never forget that goal he scored. I think it was in Malmo in the, to win the European Cup final. Yeah. And he lands on what is a manhole color, cover right yeah. by the side of the goal. And you think... How can they have such a thing? First million pound player. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Peter Shilton. Peter Shilton. It, it was an incredible side. Larry Lloyd. Yeah. You know, it just, just John Robertson, though, was a player. And John McGovern as well. Jo- John yeah. Robertson, he was that old-fashioned, have a fag, jink down the wing, do some work, then go off, have a beer, and have a fag again at halftime, and then that, come out. That's a good lockdown movie that I watched recently, The Damned United. Oh, it's uh, with Mike, Michael Sheen playing um, uh, Brian Clough. You know, I think that's uh, the Brian Clough story uh, of his time, essentially at Leeds. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's if, you, if you're looking for a film to watch and you haven't seen it, highly recommend The Damn United. Yeah. Young man, uh, young man. Yeah, it's just fantastic. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. That is indeed a fantastic. So you're going Forest, Leeds, and Wednesday. Yeah, and I'm going Leeds, Fulham, QPR. Yeah, all okay. of which I can understand. In fact, I'd like to see all six of them back. And you might. I mean, well, certainly Fulham, are, are, well, Fulham were right up there before this happened. Brentford was the other one. Brentford are up towards the, um, you know, towards the, if you're talking about local teams, uh, 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 hedging towards the playoff positions. Um, you know, QPR not so much. But, you know, it's, uh, yeah, you know, who knows? Who knows what will happen in the future? Yeah. Uh, I'd agree. Um, and Brentford, I've, I've always liked them. I used to go and see them with a guy who used to work at Cherry Red Records. Um, yeah, they Mikul- sponsored Mikul- them for a while, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Mick always used to take me down. When Chelsea were away, I'd go down to Brentford and he'd watch Stan Bowles have a pint in the Griffin before the game. <laughs> <laughs> in the days okay. when they were never going up, never going down, they just were. But I've got, um, so I've got a Stan Bowles story, but it's not for here. But I'll tell uh, that another, another time. Okay, sounds good. Right, well, look, we should have our actual break now because it's about that time. So we'll be back after this.
If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen, check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. Here we are again. Okay, next question is from Sean Dyer. This is quite an interesting one. What constitutes a player receiving legendary status? And Dave Eagleton asks, does Dave, as Piliqueta, leave the club as a legend when he goes? So how's your feeling about legendary status? For me, I think a legend is a player who stays through thick and thin, is there week after week but maybe also a kind of player who does the indescribable. How can you, Andy Saunders, define a legend? It's difficult, isn't it? I think mm. there's, degre- there's degrees. I don't think it's, it's, it's one thing. I think no. you, there are different levels of legendary status. I think you've got to have been there a long time, got to have played a lot of games. Um, you've got to have featured in iconic moments for the club. Um, and major moments for the club. It doesn't necessarily mean you've got to have won huge amounts of trophies uh, because you could look at someone, for example, like Ron Harris, you know, who won a few trophies, but not the same amount of trophies as, say, John Terry or Frank Lampard, Didier Drogba, uh, or Peter Osgood didn't win that many trophies with Chelsea. Um, but they, they were there a long time. They featured in iconic moments. And I think at some point, or, or, or you know, overall, they kind of embodied what the club stood for at a particular particular moment in time. They were the definition of the club. Um, So it's it's intangible in a way. And there's not many of them. That's the other thing. And on the question of Dave, uh, of of, um, Cesares Pelicueta, um, is he a legend? He's probably the level below legend for me. I think that he has featured in iconic moments of the club. He has been there a long time. He has been an ever-present for a very long time. He has featured throughout, you know, some of the really interesting periods of our history. But did he really define what the club was? Was he, was he, you know, sort of an embodiment of the club's DNA? I'm not sure necessarily that he was at the level that some other players were. So I think he's a kind of legend light. <laughs> legend light. Well, isn't the word stalwart, I think? He, yeah, I think he's a really important player and a player to be remembered. Would you give him a statue? I think, I think that, for me, is the definition. Would you give him a statue outside the ground? Well, that's a good point. Well, for me, there's only a handful of players who get that. Exactly. Uh, I would think Osgood has got a statue. Got a statue, yeah. I think Bonetti will now be in the hunt for a statue. Yeah. Um, I think Zola could get a statue. Yeah. Um, Lampard I'm, and Terry. Lampard and Terry. I Didier. Don't, Didier. What about Hazard? I'm not certain. No. No. 
I, I, that's going to really annoy people. But no, I won't. I, I don't think. I don't, well, I would be surprised if it did. I think that Hazard was an important player at a particular moment in time, um, and I don't think that he necessarily ever had that deep level of bonding with the club that some of those other players did and there is that element of if you cut a player open would it say Chelsea inside you know I think if you cut Frank Lampard and John Terry Didier Drogba Peter Bonetti Peter Osgood and Ron Harris open they're somewhere in the middle of them it would say Chelsea I'm not sure it would with Hazard and you're forgetting, of course, a man who made my side last week, Gary Locke. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, we, but we yeah, got... I mean, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? What's your view on it? Is, yeah, is, uh... I, I think there, there are levels. Um, I think you have stalwart. I, th- I think you have to probably have played over 300 games. Peter Cech must be close to a legend. Um, yeah, I think so. Especially... Well, I think, again, iconic again iconic moments, you know, saving those penalties yeah, in Munich I... and... Featuring in though that initial, you know, that initial Mourinho, you know, team. I mean, I think yes, Peter Cech was well, well up there. Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's a, it's such a difficult thing. But there's something about the the players that I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like a stick of rock. You cut through it, and there it is. No matter where you cut, it just keeps on saying Chelsea. So you you know, Ray Wilkins probably not. Because no, he, he was to such United. a key player, and and we, it's amazing how many people look at him and think of him as Chelsea through and through. And and in a way, he was uh, damaged by the times. I think we couldn't afford to keep him. We needed to get him off the books. So it yeah. was it was kind of. A, a I mean, real... you look. You can go further back and look at Jimmy Greaves, and basically yeah. say Jimmy Greaves, you know, came through the the ranks at Chelsea, scored an incredible amount of goals, was an amazing player, but he spent a lot of his career at Spurs and went to AC Milan, and you know, it d- didn't, you know. Would you, if you cut Jimmy Greaves open, would it say Chelsea? Probably wouldn't. It would probably say Chelsea slash Spurs. It's, it's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult to define it. You kind of just have to feel it, feel whether somebody's a legend. And um, I, I don't necessarily feel some of those players are at the level of others. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, But you're mentioning Greaves. That's of another time, And, and I guess it's really hard for us. When you only hear things historically, it's like James. Um, his question was James. Who? Uh, I don't know. His name is just James on Twitter. Okay. Um, so that's it. It's James, and and he'll know who he is. Hey James. Hey James. Um, he asked about the similarity between Doherty's Diamonds and the present day young team. Mm. Um, now we've chatted about this, and feel neither of us is qualified to talk about this at great length because we are so damn young. Um, <laughs> but my thoughts are. are, are, are looking at research and and do you learn more about us historically because you want to do you feel it's important to look at chelsea history do you like learning about what went before or, or are you more stuck in the present and your own memories no i think you, you know if you support a football club you've got to have a sense of history you've got to understand what went before you've got to have a feeling that you're part of an unbroken historical chain you know and 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 what your part in it is and what the context of your part in it is because you're only going to be here for 
40, 50, 60 years, and then another generation will come and a generation after that. And having a sense of that is really important when you support a football club. And so, yes, you need to understand what happened before you. How far back you go is up to you. And yes, of course, I mean, I know a little bit about that era from, from what I've read. And obviously, Tim Rolls wrote a book about, you know, um, Doherty's Diamonds, I think it's called. It's, it's uh, called... Devils, Diamond. Diamond, De- Diamonds, Devils and Dynamos, is that right? Diamonds, Dynamos and Devils, the transformation yeah. of Chelsea FC under Tommy Doherty. Yeah, so Tim's book is there for people to read. Um, and there's obviously a lot more um, you know, information available online now than there ever was. So, yes, you can go and have a look at it. Rick Glanville's done um, you know, a huge amount of work around the history of the club. Um, so, so, yes, I think it is important. And I do enjoy finding out about it. Um, but you know, as I say, that I don't feel qualified necessarily to make a comparison between that team and the current team in terms of youth policy because I just don't. I don't feel I know enough about it. No, I I think it's a, it's about trusting in youth, but you can only trust in youth if you've got the players with the talent, I guess. So, I, and this was a special time, wasn't it? You know, we we had the transfer ban, we had the young manager, we had a lot of planets colliding, you know, or, or stars aligning, or whatever the analogy is you want to use, that allowed us to do that. And it's been a really interesting and exciting project, which we hope gets picked up when we're all back to normal and and developed, and we see some of these you know players coming through and and really establish themselves to heart back to our previous question establishing themselves as legends at the club spot on right moving on matt lowe he says 1992 the year everything changed lights glitter continental stardust reflected by a one-all draw at home to oldham in brackets harford Mm. um now this is the 1992 season which was the first year of the premier league what made me laugh is when that tweet went up, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a sec, but what made me laugh was you immediately replied to that, didn't you? And tell everyone what with. Well, I have a nice photo of me with Mick Harford, <laughs> so I put that up. I played in a charity cricket match with Mick Harford a couple of years ago, and um, he was at Luton. Um, I don't know if he still is, but he was working at Luton, and um, he'd come over with the manager of Luton, and they took part in this charity cricket match. And he's very nice. He had very dodgy knees, so he, he needed a runner. He couldn't run. He needed somebody to do his running for him. And um, yeah, he was in. A, he was in a bit of pain, I have to say. But he was a very nice man, uh, and still, you know, still pretty big and wiry. And you know, as I thought at the time, you wouldn't want to. You still wouldn't want to mark him at corners. <laughs> and he was also, wasn't he, one of those players who actually played at quite a decent level cricket-wise in in yeah, his yeah. actual football playing days. So no, he's got some. He's got some shots. Yeah. No. It. it, it. Charity cricket games, it's amazing who you meet. I'll, I'll never forget, uh, I bowled out Dave Gilmore of Pink Floyd, first ball. Um, so, yes, that was quite entertaining. And, and then, of course, had to decide it was a no ball because everyone had come to see him, not some bloke down the other end bowling him mm. out. But, um, yes, very strange business. But, yeah, back to 19... 19- he was the top scorer in 1992, Harford. It's, it's bizarre, isn't it? Cause you- Do you know how many goals he scored in that season? Uh, league goals 11 no 9 oh, I mean, you're looking at the Wikipedia I'm not, I'm not I'm, I promise you I am not <laughs> how many was it yeah, it was nine uh, okay. in, in the league and, and 11 in, in, Pure guess. in August. No, it wasn't. No, I promise you, I swear to God, I'll take a photo right now. You can see the time <laughs> and you can see that I am not lying. My, my computer there, time stamp and everything. So you could just see, 
I wouldn't lie about stuff like that. There's other stuff to lie about, but not that. Um, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I saw the Sex Pistols' first gig. You know, that's that's the kind of lies. <laughs> but I didn't. So you know. Um, okay, let's let's move on. Um, I think that might be very wise to discuss the 1992 season. Can you remember any of our transfers in that year? Uh, yeah, well, I do. I am looking at the Wikipedia page <laughs> as we speak, um, so I can tell you what the transfers were in that page. Uh, we, we signed Mal Donaghy from Man United yep, for £100,800. Bonkers, isn't it? Can you imagine? That? And we made, we made three, uh, well, one free transfer, which was uh, an amazing transfer. It turned out to be an amazing transfer, which is John Spencer from Rangers. We Spenny. Uh, free transfer. Uh, we also signed uh, Nick Colgan, who was a goalkeeper from Drogheda United for an undisclosed fee. And uh, perhaps one of our most disastrous uh, signings, again, for an undisclosed fee from, uh, fee from Norwich City, was Robert Fleck. Oh, gosh, Robert Fleck. Uh, we bought him because he scored twice against us the previous year, didn't, didn't he, yeah. for Norwich at Chelsea. And, That's right. Um, and again, uh, a bit like what you were saying about Stan Collymore, he looked like a world beater then. He looked like an absolute tank of a forward who was going to come in and score goals for fun in the, uh, in the Premier League and, and just never did. Well, he scored a goal away at Villa, and then I remember he finally got his first home goal against Walsall in the League Cup, which I think right. was October. And I was there in the shed that, that night. Um, you know, Walsall, we should have beaten 4-5-0. Yeah. <clears throat> and he, we got a penalty, and he grabbed the ball and stepped up to take it. And when he scored, he leapt over the hoarding towards the, the shed yeah, and that. celebrated yeah. wildly. And I cannot tell you how many people burst out laughing. It was cruel, and I think it really affected him badly. Well, he was just another in a long line of, you know, great, potentially great strikers that came to Chelsea and, and, and failed, you know, you, you know, after that came Cascarino and after that came Chris Sutton and you know, the, the, the line goes on. We just seem to be able to break strikers. Yeah. And we've been consistent about that, but we have, uh, but uh, yeah, Dennis was captain. Andy Townsend was still there. Do you know, we had, and I didn't know this until I saw that Wikipedia page you're now looking at, six keepers in that season we had. Yeah, we had I know. Besson, Alec Chamberlain on loan from Luton, Nick Colgan, Kevin Hitchcock, Dimitri Karin, and Jerry Payton on loan from Everton. Yeah. What was going on? Was everyone rubbish or injured? I can't remember. Seems to be a glut of goalkeepers. Yeah, it does seem far too many. And uh, on a trivial note... It was our first return to wearing white socks since 1984-85. Yeah. Uh, we think of that as just de rigueur and that the blue socks were just for games where other socks matched. I, I didn't realise that uh, we'd played in blue for so long, actually. Thinking but also as well, it. I was reading as well that the away kit was the, the, the kind of the red pinstripes, red yep. shorts and, and socks that was based around the 1990 following the, the the World Cup. It was a sort of a World Cup nostalgia kind of craze that everybody was involved with at the time. So, yeah. Yeah, and we'd start... I don't like those red kits. Anything with red on them, I'm just not, I'm not a fan of. Yeah, well, uh, you know, um, Nick Biles, who's on the other week doing his first uh, Worst and Best, who sits in front of me, when we had the kit a couple of years ago with the red bit on the back of the college going, it's just not right, it's just not right, there shouldn't be any red on the kit. I, I don't think there should, I agree. I agree. I agree with you and with him. Mm. So, yeah, Ian Porterfield was a manager. 
Um, started well. It all fell apart. And then I forgot about this. David Webb. That was the year David Webb came in to steady the ship. He, he kept us up. Yeah, he did. I, it, it's, a, it's a really... Well, I say kept us up because we, we started the season really well. And I think at one point we were second. And then we just went on this terrible run. Yep. And then ended up, you know, not, not fighting for our lives, but certainly not safe. And I think after that, you know, terrible run where we just we just couldn't buy um, we couldn't buy a win. Um, I think we ended, you know, we ended with fifty six points, um, f- finishing eleventh. You know, but which wasn't terrible. But you know, there were points of the season where we just felt like we were dropping dropping like a stone. Yeah, and it, um, but they didn't. They didn't keep David Webb, did they? No, because it's what I call the in between year, the year of change. Because the next year, that's when I I, I would maintain that was the start of modern Chelsea. Because Glenn that Hoddle, that's came when Hoddle came in, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So so it it was a key moment this this changeover period uh, because we became more of a football side, I guess, in, in a in a strange way. So it, it's a very important year i think that that year i think it marks the end of something and the beginning of something else but mm. um you interestingly there was a couple of players you know as i said chris harley wanted to hear tales of uh, of music business and things and maybe this is a crossover because of course you you uh, got to know some of the players and because of your work and they were music fans uh, tell us a little bit more about that yeah, I did. I mean, they obviously around that period, well, not, not necessarily in 1992, but around 94, 95, um, Oasis became very big, as everybody knows, um, and very glamorous. And there was, during that sort of Cool Britannia, Britpop period, quite a lot of crossover between football and music, in the sense that a lot of the musicians wanted to be footballers and a lot of the footballers wanted to be musicians. Um, and, and there was a lot of, um, you know, stuff going on you know, around football and music. So so there was a, an obvious crossover. And actually, David Lee's girlfriend at the time ended up being my PA. Um, and so I got to know David quite well. And David just was a huge Oasis fan. And we used to take him to Oasis gigs. And we took him to Earl's Court, Main Road, and some of those big, you know, sort of important gigs around that time. And um, John Spencer as well became um, a, a, a sort of a, a, a mate because he was friends with the guy that ran record company I was with at the moment. He was a huge Rangers fan and kind of knew him from that. And we took him to the Brits. And, um, you know, I've told the story before about when uh, Steve Clark had his testimonial. Uh, we took all the players to Nebworth um, to see Oasis and they all got spectacularly drunk and misbehaved and you know I think it was probably one of the last times that footballers were allowed out without media handlers um, <laughs> because you know they all kind of disgraced themselves in a very funny way but yeah I mean it's it's uh, it was it was a time when it felt like the two worlds were a lot closer together well, for you as a Chelsea fan I mean it must have been the most extraordinary feeling wasn't it <laughs> it was amazing I did the PR I did the PR around um, around Steve Clark's testimonial you know I did that you know I, I you know I, I helped him promote and publicize his testimonial and um, you know got to know the players quite well and and um, yeah it was a, it was amazing being able to have these conversations with players who were always really honest about what was going on at the club or what you know what their relationships were with people and I was always astonished that they would speak so openly and 
but to them it was normal. It was just normal to have a conversation. I was just always slightly in awe. And they were always slightly in awe of the bands. So it was, you know, everybody was walking around slightly in awe of everybody else. So it was, it was fine. And of course you were mates with Damon from Blur and... You know various other people, so you had you had some experience of that as well. Oh God, yeah, no, I mean it, it was an incredible time. That that whole um, I hate using it, the Britpop era because you know I still think that was a, a strange way to put it, but it, it helped with sales, I guess. But you know all those indie nights out at places like Syndrome, and you, you'd see every everybody. It was a melting pot of musicians. The and, good mixer in Camden. Oh, the good mixer. I mean the, the nights of, of playing pool in there, and then trying to work out how the hell to get to west london when you'd spent everything but um, you used to live in you lived in um in in, in west kensington didn't you so what was yeah. that what was that pub that was down the bottom of your road the kensington the kensington yeah all right okay it we, used to be there used to be the ad lib club back in the day that's right exactly yeah. so we used to go there didn't we and yep and, and hang out with people yeah, yeah. A lot of musicians graced that that place. In fact, funnily enough, somebody who wasn't in our circle uh, was who we used to drink with in there was Phil Kaufman. Who oh was yeah, the, the legendary man who took uh, Graham Parsons up to Joshua Tree when he died. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and, yeah, exactly. Uh, he told me that story quite a number of times but it was still amazing <laughs> but, but you know it's a good story if you've got that story you tell it a number of times absolutely you know so basically he stole his body didn't he that's right yeah, yeah. stole his body and took him up and did he bury him or burn him i can't remember he did something I, up yeah, and, i think he burned him yeah um yeah i just just incredible rock legend took him out to the desert and and yeah and offered um, him up to the gods and he was a great guy, a big walrus, white moustache and things, and hung out with some, some really odd characters, yeah. including um, the guys from the Gun Club. Do you remember oh, the yeah. Gun Club? Great um, God, I can't remember. Um, Lee, Jeffrey Lee Pierce. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Lee, Lee Pierce. Pierce. Yeah, yeah. yeah, who was weird. Uh, and had a yeah. Japanese girlfriend. Well, they had all they, the they were a very you know drug induced band, weren't they? Mm, they were pretty drug induced. Any time you saw them, to be yeah, fair, you exactly. know they'd just sit there gouching at the table, um, you know. But uh, there we go. But th- there are other stories we can talk about, but not now. You know, I mean, there's a lot of tie ups talking about the indeed say with Elastica because you you ran the the, the record label of, along with a couple of other friends of ours, and we did all those early videos and mm. shot all the early stuff. So there were. Amazing stories we can go into at some point, but um, I guess we should go back to some football here. And Lockdown Dan asks, which players do you wish you could have signed since watching Chelsea? Now, I Hi, Dan. Know- How are you, Dan? This is Dan Silver, who's a friend of ours. Um, uh, yeah, he's uh, he's a good guy that, um, you know, is also part of the Chelsea fan cast. So shout out to them as well. Um, so, yeah, good question. And Good I know question. you hate transfer speculation, but Why don't this you is go retro. First on this, one? this is retro speculation, so yeah. it's okay. Um, this well, there's all sorts of players. I guess I've gone for more modern players. Um, I've gone for Aguero. Oh, I went for him as well. Oh, interesting. Mainly because if you remember, for about two years, I oh, know we were linked with him forever, weren't we? Him. And also um, uh, Thingy Bob, the, the centre-back, from the captain from um, 
Man City as well. Oh, God. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, um, yeah. Oh, my God. God. <laughs> oh, no. Stupid old Was it Andalus? Uh, oh, yes. my God. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come company. back. Company. Vincent Company. Vincent Company. <laughs> Both of them were, were always coming to Chelsea, and then suddenly they weren't. So, Aguero yeah. and the other one, just because he's one of those players. He's timeless. He, he everything happens in his own space, in his own time. Iniesta. Yeah, he would have been amazing. Yeah, exactly. And and I think both of them and I picked them because I think both of them could have worked within the way Chelsea play. Did you go just for two? Yes, I thought okay. that was it. that was the question for two. If you've gone for more, let's hear them. Well, Aguero was I've one for the same reason. We were constantly linked with him, and I just think imagine if, if Aguero had come to Chelsea and you know how many goals he would have scored for us. I mean, he's a, an incredible player and. The consistency throughout his whole career is amazing. So, and I, you know, I do watch him with. I mean, even now he's coming towards the sort of twilight years of his career. You just know he's still incredibly dangerous as a player. And I just would have loved to have seen him in a Chelsea shirt. I mean, another player that I think would have been amazing for us is Frank Ribery. You know, who at times was linked with us, went on to have an amazing uh, career at PSG and Bayern Munich, um, and you know was a brilliant left-sided. Um, attacking player who I just thought was a you know a, you know not not a particularly decent human being by all accounts but a great <laughs> but a great player um, and again I think would have done brilliant things and I think if I could choose a player that didn't play for Chelsea and played for one of our rivals um, that always terrified me when he played against us and who I just think was an astonishing player. I would have loved to have Thierry Henry at Chelsea as well. Yeah. I think Thierry Henry was an, was an incredible player in the Premier League. And the worst of it is he was a really nice guy as well, apparently. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously he's an Arsenal player, so there's that, there's that level of rivalry. But if you can remove that from it, which I know is difficult, imagine Thierry Henry playing for Chelsea. Yeah, no, I, I can go. Well, it's, a, it's dream world, so it's fine. Um, yeah. Getting back to reality, we should move on to, because we're close to wrapping up now, it's time for First, Worst and Best. And this week, it's Carol Ann Wood, who's also a Chelsea poet. I'm Carol Ann Wood. I've supported Chelsea for 50 years on the 11th of April this year. My first match would have been away at Carrow Road in Norwich, as I grew up in rural Norfolk. I think it would have been the 1972-73 season, as Norwich had just been promoted to Division 1. My dad took me, but oddly he wouldn't take me in with the Chelsea fans. Instead, I found myself alone blue, decked out of my knitted blue and white scarf, amongst a sea of yellow and green at the front of what I think they called the River End. No one paid me much attention as I proudly sang my heart out and gazed admiringly for 45 minutes at my hero, Peter Bonetti. Chelsea were in a bit of de- decline by then, though, and I think we lost 1-0, but that didn't deter me. My best game? Well, I'm trying to avoid the obvious ones, but I would have to say a fantastic memory is of the 1997 FA Cup final. It was the first trip to Wembley for me and my son, made all the more poignant by the fact that, as we'd missed out on tickets in 94, which is probably a good thing with hindsight, 
Um, I'd queued for seven and a half hours to secure our seats in 97. Like many that day, we hadn't even sat down when Di Matteo scored. I just remember us standing up. We'd just got back to our seats from um, the front where we'd been just soaking up the atmosphere and just seeing the ball fly <laughs> towards the net. Um, I immediately thought, oh no, it's too soon. Um, but then another part of me said to myself, it'd just been our destiny all along after losing Matthew so cruelly. And, you know, then there was the amazing 4-2 comeback against Liverpool. And it was my son's first experience of seeing us winning a major trophy. So it's very special to me. And the banners were up at our window all that summer. The worst game... I know that obviously there have been many in 50 years, but I'm going to go as recent as last season, simply because I still can't fathom how it happened, Bournemouth away, 2019. Many of us were unhappy with Sari as a coach, and things were becoming hard to bear by this point. But I'd seen those players on match day morning. They didn't seem nonchalant. They didn't seem unmotivated. The first half was unremarkable, and many of us thought at half-time, OK, another ball draw. But I then made the mistake of going onto the pitch to film my friend Terry's entry into a daft competition. I vowed never to go on a pitch at half-time ever again. Did I jinx it? Maybe. But <laughs> honestly, I'm in my late 50s and dyspraxic. I mean, if I'd stayed on the pitch to play... I couldn't have done any worse than our players did in the second half. I think we all felt that we just couldn't go on that way anymore, making bad managerial choices. And let's hope now, so far so good with Frank and Jody. I just really, really hope that that whole era of constant change and flux has come to an end. But that game was a truly depressing and baffling night and I hope that I live long enough to actually just forget about it. So there we go. I, I love that, that story of, about um, queuing up for the 1997 FA Cup final. Do you remember queuing? It was the weirdest thing, wasn't it, to queue for your tickets? And, yeah, it was. And, and, and having to... to pick your moment when you go down i mean we used to go down at like five or six in the morning and there would still be hundreds of people in front of you yeah did you ever not get a ticket in while queuing up uh not that i can remember no i think i was always it was always pretty good i mean for, for on match days of course you would just turn up at the ground wouldn't you and pay at the turnstiles in those days but you're talking about for kind of away games and and big for cup finals and cup yeah. finals and things like that no I, I did okay 1994 i did okay I'm trying to think no i think i did okay i never didn't get a ticket that i wanted i i didn't get it for 1994 we queued up and literally they stopped about 10 people in front of us that, I, that, I remember that being really easy. I remember turning up and there not being much of a queue uh, for some reason. Well, um, unless my mind's playing tricks, which is, which is pretty possible. Was it done on loyalty points or something? I can't remember. Or did you uh, just turn up and buy one? No, I, I can't remember. I think Honestly, I might not can't remember. I remember getting one quite easily. I, we were a member, I think, in 1994 as opposed to season ticket holders. We'd lapsed. 
we were oh, lapsed season ticket holders. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I'm going on my own. Um, well, that's because you had no mates and no mates. No, <laughs> but why didn't I go with you? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know because we because that was that was a time where we got to know each other through work and yeah. then found we had all this common ground and and yeah we went to Chelsea quite a lot together. It I, I don't know I don't know weird I don't know. Yeah. missed the time yeah long time exactly. ago though wasn't it yeah was twenty five years ago oh my god it's terrifying yeah. um, and then the last point before we wrap up um, she talks about her first game at Norwich. Uh, and uh, being being in with Norwich fans wearing a Chelsea scarf. What about you? Any strange experiences in with the wrong fans? Well, I was in with the Norwich fans this season at, <laughs> uh, at Carrow Road. You know, I went there. In fact, David Lee, we talked about David Lee earlier, got me a ticket to go and see. I couldn't get, for some reason, didn't get a ticket for Chelsea away at Norwich earlier this season um, when we won convincingly. And Tammy, Tammy, Tammy score a hat trick. I think yes. he, uh, yeah, he did, yeah, and Mason Mount scored as well, we smashed them. Um, and I was in with the Norwich fans, because David Lee's mate was the youth coach at Norwich or something, So, oh, and they were very nice, and um, offered me sandwiches and all sorts of stuff, and even I think even though they realised I wasn't one of them, it was it was perfectly fine. I, I think the worst, or the most strange time I've been in with the away fans was when we, when, when we played Tottenham at White Hart Lane, and I took my four-year-old son, and we beat them 6-1, and I was in with the Tottenham fans because a friend of mine was a Tottenham fan and gave me his season tickets. And that was wholly irresponsible as a parent to take your young child into the away end at Tottenham when you smash them so convincingly. <laughs> OK, I, uh, I've got two away uh, stories. One I won't tell too much because I think I've told it on here before. One was uh, finding out that my ticket for the Champions League final oh, was yeah. in with the, the Munich fans who were actually very pleasant, and it was okay. The The other one isn't even going as a Chelsea fan. It was when I was at university at Manchester, and a lot of my friends were Leeds fans, which was pretty horrid in itself. But they said, hey, look, we're going to, to Leeds for the weekend. Do you want to come with us, and we'll, we'll go and see some football as well? So I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go with you. And the, the game was Leeds versus Tottenham, and I, I was in the Leeds end with all my friends. Uh, and I had to basically say I was a Cockney white, yeah, which was disgusting because I was being threatened with being punched, beaten up and attacked the whole way through the game. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and having to pretend that I'm a Cockney white, a, a London Leeds fan, is probably the most tainted I've ever felt in my life, dirty. I have to say. Dirty. really. I've sat, any, I've sat any away in at Leeds a couple of times because I got um, again, you know, uh, when I was at. You mean the home end at Leeds? Sorry, the yeah, well, you know, the, whoever the Leeds fans, <laughs> yeah, with the Leeds fans, yeah. because um, I, I got offered some corporate hospitality um, by somebody provided services to the record company I was working at, um, and we went up there a couple of times and did it. And yeah, my son, you know, I've said this before, my son was the mascot. Uh, at Leeds, Chelsea as well. So sat sat at Leeds, not next to the away fans, in the Chelsea fans, but next to the away fans. And that was pretty horrific as well. But, yeah, all good fun. Well, I think that's a good point to end on. We started talking about Leeds. We've now ended up talking about Leeds. Dirty Leeds. Dirty, bloody Leeds. There we go. All right, mate. Great to catch up as usual. Um, I hope this week stays as as safe as it's been the last few. And um, we will catch up next week. Good to speak to you, Andy. And you, mate. Take care. All right. Cheers, then. This is a Playback Media production. 
Get all the associated links for this podcast at chelseapodcast.net. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.